Hi, welcome to New Abbey. My name's Jess, and it's awesome to have you. The reading from this week is Mark 12, 1 through 17. And the question is, do you pay your taxes? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not that. Because <laughs> uh, I don't want to answer that, honestly. <laughs> the real question is, we're going to go a little bit lighter today. And the question is, how are you feeling? And if you're tuning in from home, maybe take a moment um, to pause and meditate and center yourself and prepare yourself for the message that Darren's about to give us. What a time to be alive right now. And what a time to be studying the life of Jesus and particularly these final confrontations that he's having with the political and religious leaders of his day. Uh, we're in a kind of a crisis of the intersection of politics and religion in our world right now. And I want to name that. And I want to name that because I believe this passage speaks to that intersection in our world today and potentially even a framework that might be helpful for us to have when we approach the concepts of politics and religion. Um, so let's get into it. There's two stories here, two parables. Well, one parable and one story of Jesus in the temple. Uh, and the parable goes like this. There, there's a landowner and he basically builds up a vineyard and leases it out to some tenants. Uh, and as these tenants are working the, the farm and doing their part, uh, the landowner sends back his servants to them and asks that they give him his portion of the fruits of the vineyard as the landowner. And they refuse and instead they beat up a servant and send the servant back with nothing. Well, the landowner sends us another servant and this time they kill that servant. And then the landowner sends another servant and this time they beat this one up again. But but then the, the landowner sends his own son. After several servants that are, have been sent, that have been killed or beaten, he decides maybe they would listen to my son. Uh, and what happens there? Well, they kill the son as well. And so we need to pause here and just think about who, what this represents in our story. You see, it talks about at the end of this parable that they knew that this parable was told against them, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, right? And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders would find themselves uh, the tenants of the vineyard at this point, right? So they, they were stewarding God's vineyard and God asked that they would give them his due. And well, they instead killed all of God's servants, right? And we actually can see that parallel pretty easy in the Hebrew scriptures. The prophets would come over and over again and say, this is what the Lord requires of you. Do justice and walk humbly with your God. Love mercy, right? I, I want you to have the spirit of the law inside of you, the spirit of God working through you in your, in your nation. And, and then, of course, we know that uh, the son in this situation would be foreshadowed as Jesus. Um, but we want to be quick to say that the primary function of this parable is not just to foreshadow Jesus. Now, of course, this does this well because he sends his son. That son is killed. And uh, ultimately, the landowner comes back and ends up killing all the tenants, right? It's a very pleasant ending of the story. Uh, but the primary function of this, again, was not for a foreshadowing of what was to come with Jesus, because we actually need to look at the motivation this re reveals behind the tenants. You see, uh, the reason why they killed the son is because they believed that if the landowner was going to send to the landowner's son, uh, that that means the landowner must actually be dead, right? And this son would have an inheritance. 
Well, they also knew that the law would declare that if that son, the, the person who has inherited that land, who has no child of their own, if that person died, well, the tenants of the land would have a legal right to take over that land for themselves. You see, the tenants became way more interested in increasing their own wealth, increasing their own power, uh, than they ever were occupying and kind of doing their job in the land that they were given. And so seeing an opportunity, they decide to kill the son to increase their power. Uh, and, and that's what it's revealing behind the scenes of what's going on with these religious leaders. So, you know, kind of moving on to the next passage, we're going we're gonna to come back to this because it's important that we recognize uh, how that passage is going. But it says a lot about what this next story of Jesus in the temple does. Uh, so the next story is... Uh, Jesus being approached by some Herodians and Pharisees. Now, we haven't really seen the Herodians many, many times in Mark at this point, but essentially the Herodians were a political party uh, within the Jews that actually wanted that independent Jewish nation state that a lot of Jews wanted, but they truly believed that they wanted Herod to be uh, kind of the leader, the Herodian dynasty to lead the Jewish people in the Jewish state. Um, so the Herodians and the Pharisees coming together, well, they had different interests in mind, right? The only thing they shared is wanting an independent Jewish state in some way, shape and form. But they had diff different ideas of what that would look like. But them coming together kind of signals that we're about to have a conversation that is in some tricky political water for Jesus. And so they ask a very innocent question and they even butter him up along the way. But they ask, is it right to, to pay ta the imperial tax to Caesar? Um, and you see, if Jesus would say just outright uh, yes, then that might kind of subvert the claims that he's been making all along about this political subversion. But if Jesus were to say no, that could be considered treason. And they could arrest Jesus right there on the spot as treason against the Roman state. Um, and so Jesus, you know, grabs a coin and he like looks at it a little bit, fumbles around and says, whose inscription is this? And who, whose likeness is this? They said Caesar's and little performance theater. And he flips it back to them, says, well, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So uh, how is this normally interpreted? I grew up in a space where this was used as proof texting uh, that we should, as citizens, the Bible is telling us that we need to pay our taxes. You know, if we have to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, we have to give to Uncle Sam what is Uncle Sam's, right? It, it became a proof text for this brand of Christian nationalism that honestly we're seeing on the rise in a lot of places here today. And they'll take little verses like this out of context uh, throughout the Bible uh, to kind of justify a sense of unwavering loyalty to a state like a Rome, a Roman Empire or like the U.S. government. Well, we have to take this in context with the rest of Jesus's message throughout Mark. That seems very inconsistent that he would just say, oh, yeah, do exactly what Rome says. That, that, that's not exactly the Jesus we've seen this entire time. So what's happening here? Well, there's a gag in this because the reality is, is he says that give to God what is God's. Well, what is God's? Well, if we were just paying attention to the story of a landowner uh, who owned a vineyard, everything was the landowner and that they, that the religious leaders or the Caesars of the world are merely tenants. 
So sure, maybe, yeah. Give to Caesar something that it feels like a Caesar's, but the reality is Caesar is only a tenant here and God is the owner of everything. That we have a God that is bigger. We have a God that has asked us to steward God's world, right? The this leadership of a Caesar is just a mirage, right? So sure, you can throw money that way, but yeah, throw money to God. Throw whatever it is that you have to offer towards God because that is who owns this whole thing. So you see, it was a very tricky wordplay where it, he both subverted uh, Caesar's authority and kind of lifted up God's authority without getting himself into trouble quite yet. Uh, that will come soon in the story of Mark. But we have to recognize that in this passage, for us to uh, kind of do the work that we need to do with scripture, we need to wrestle with the idea that God is big. That God is God of all of us, that God is the landowner and all of us leaders and all of us people are, are merely tenants. We have to do some work recognizing that we belong to God. And I believe that's a challenge because it's a call to humility for us. As that humbled the position of the Caesars and of the religious leaders in that day, we too are humbled in our position in this world and what we are able to do, accomplish, or what we have final say over. Now, this conversation may be a little triggering for some people, right? Did anyone grow up in a space where uh, the idea of God being in troll led to some manipulation, right? Like maybe someone said, you know, I would really love to affirm your sexuality, but it's not my decision. God is in control and that's why we have to do this, right? Or, oh, it's just the natural order of things. God made men to be leaders and women to be followers or helpers. And like, that's, there's nothing I can do about it. It's just God and God is in control. Or maybe something even along the lines of, well, everything is God. So you, you should be at praise, uh, praise team practice. You should be at Bible studies and church every week. And you should be reading the Bible every day and evangelizing every conversation. Because guess what? It's all God's anyways. It's time to start living like it. I bet you I'm not the only one that heard things like that in my life. We've connected this idea of belonging to God and of God's authority and leadership and sovereignty in our life to this kind of authoritarian legalism or this manipulation over our lives. And those things aren't necessarily connected. We have to recognize that connection between this belonging to God and this kind of legalism and manipulation is what we call an unhealthy and probably even abusive relationship that a lot of us have had. So we have to do some work to kind of disentangle that and to break that cycle Right? We have to do the work of trying to figure out what does belonging to God mean and what could that offer to my life if I held on to that. And we have to recognize, no, it doesn't mean some sort of micromanaging over our life. Right, I, I, I don't see that kind of thing in scripture. I don't see that in the message of Jesus. So we have to ask the question, what is possible when we believe in a big God? This is a really big question for our community. Our mission statement is being a Jesus community, telling the biggest story of God possible, right? This idea that God is big and we belong to God and we can't go anywhere where we're away from God is who we are in our DNA. 
yet it really is hard for some of us to hold on to that idea based on where we come from. So let's talk about it. What does that have to offer to us? What are the things uh, that come from this reality of belonging to God? Well, I, I think I've, I've taken some time this week to think through what kind of fruit that might produce in our lives or what is available to us. Uh, and I want to talk about a few of those things. I think when we believe that everything is God's, it allows us to live with open hands. And now that can be really cheesy, but we have to recognize how many of us, especially in our fast paced culture these days, kind of live in this tight, clenched fist of trying to hold on to whatever semblance of control that we have in our own lives, a semblance of trying to make shit get done, make shit work, right? And we live in this constant, constant grind. For so many of us, opening our hands means to let things fall. But what we can do when we start to open our hands is we start to come to a place of trust. And I think this is another fruit of this worldview, of this way of looking at the world, is that we begin to trust God, right? And we begin to rest, and I think this is important for people who are really active in thinking about uh, what does it look like to do justice in the world? That rest is a part of the work of justice. So we can look at this parable of the vineyard and the tenants in the vineyard, and we can say, oh yeah, the way the tenants were treating these servants was abhorrent and unjust. And we should, if we were there, we should speak up, we should fight, we should try to protect the lives of these servants that are being killed. Sure, we can say that. But ultimately, what was it that ended the cycle of abuse and violence? It was God, right? God came in and ended it. Now, it was with the violent act, and we can have conversations about the Bible's understanding of judgment and violence, and those are very important conversations to have. But ultimately, when it came down to it, we could have taken a rest from our work at some time because God ultimately was going to come back and do the work for us. How many of us need to believe that God is going to make right some things in our world today? What kind of sleep would you get at night if you believed that that might happen one day? This is a discipline. It really is a discipline to recognize that everything might belong to God. It's just as it is a discipline to have hope. But I think it's available to us. And the other thing that this kind of worldview, this understanding that God is just kind of the leader, the authority that owns everything, and we belong to God, it, it gives us humility. And humility is really important because the reality is we don't know what's coming. We don't know everything. We don't know everyone, right? There's so much that we are unaware of. And it can be so easy for our pessimism or our optimism to keep us from having the humility about our worldview that we need. But when we recognize that God is bigger, that this world is bigger and it belongs to God, that humility is produced in us because we trust God for all the things that we don't know. And this is this kind of evokes in us a spirit of if we all belong to God, we also belong to each other. There's a sense of mutuality and care for one another that we have because we're all a part of God's plan. And I know some of that language can be triggering, but there's also a way we can reclaim that. And we also get to recognize in this worldview that really everything has the potential for beauty or everything is already beautiful if only we have eyes to see it. 
It all belongs to God. All humans are made in the image of God. And I know that's hard to believe sometimes, and maybe it's hard to believe right now, but I do believe it's true that we are all made in the image of God, and that is good news. Right? So these are all difficult concepts for people, depending on your background. And so here's where the challenge is, is that if this is hard for you, I want to help us get there. If this is easy for you, great. Praise God. Teach us. Give us some of that worldview. Give us some of that trust that you have, that rest you take. Show us how you hold your hands open. But for those of us that have a hard time with this, I want to introduce a little idea that my therapist gave to me. Uh, and it's introducing parts of me language. Because the reality is we're all complex and multifaceted human beings, right? We contradict ourselves constantly, even though we like to believe we don't. Not all of us believes one thing, but the reality is that we have parts of ourselves. So while part of me really does believe that opening my hands a little bit more would offer some trust, would offer some rest that would be good news for my life. Well, the other part of me believes that opening my hands means that a bunch of things are going to get dropped and it means that I'm going to lose control and bad things will happen. Well, if I can acknowledge that there are two parts of me in this, maybe I can choose to lean into the part of me that believes in opening my hands would be good for me. Well, maybe I believe, part of me believes that everything is beautiful, and part of me believes that everyone is made in the image of God, but there's another part of me that wonders how the hell this person could be made in the image of God. Well, maybe today or one day you can choose to lean into the beauty and experience what it might look like to recognize that all are a part of this larger thing that we call the kingdom of God. This parts of me language is very helpful for you owning all parts of yourself in the ways that you contradict and being honest with yourself and also gives us an opportunity to experience that humility, to experience that trust, to experience that rest. And some of us have been longing for that for a very long time. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to go back into our groups uh, and ask the question to each other. Do you believe that God is big and that we all belong to God? Or does part of you believe that? Well, what, talk about it. What parts of you coexist within yourself? And how could you potentially lean into one of these parts that might lend itself towards that trust and rest and humility just this week? I recognize that might be too hard to do the week after that, and that's okay. This is why we recognize each part individually. So why don't you go back into your group, talk about the bigness of God, talk about the parts of you, and talk about what that might look like to live into uh, the fact that God is big. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Instagram at New Abbey NoHo. And if you're interested in giving to New Abbey NoHo, feel free to head over to www.newabbey.org generosity. Be sure to scroll down to the North Hollywood Fund. Thank you, and have a blessed week.